0: by showing you actually the latest satellite
1: picture
2: down.
0: Hello and welcome to our podcast, Slow News. We've been away for a while, but we're back with two special episodes about migration. I'm Michal and I'm here with Louise. Migration continues to be a dominating topic in national elections across the world, including in the European elections this May. This is the first of the two podcasts, focusing on migration in a European context, more specifically on Denmark. We have spoken to Eva Singer, director of the Asylum Department of the Danish Refugee Council, about certain elements within the Danish asylum procedure. Stay tuned for this interview with Eva. The second part, next week, deals with migration and refugees from Burundi as a case study of one of the forgotten crises in the world. It will shift the focus to inner African migration, which we tend to forget when looking at refugees arriving in Europe. In this first podcast, we'll talk about refugees coming to and returning home from Denmark.
1: That's right, Michal. We're talking about Denmark specifically because the country decided not to follow the common guidelines that EU member states have agreed on. In fact, Denmark is one out of three states that have opted out of the common European asylum system in 2013. This is because Denmark has an opt-out for justice and home affairs, which is what the Common European Asylum System falls under. But to fully grasp this European context, we first need to look at what the Common European Asylum System is. Michal, could you explain this a bit more?
0: Yes, of course. The EU Common European Asylum System sets minimum standards for the treatment of all asylum seekers and applications across the EU. The idea is to ensure that all EU member states protect the rights of asylum seekers and refugees. However, the implementation of the asylum system varies throughout the EU, which means that there are effectively 28 asylum systems producing different results. That is also why the EU has been trying to reform the system since 2016 in order to ensure more cohesion. But as we know, this is not always so easy with 28 different opinions.
1: The EU has also set up the Dublin Convention within this framework. What is that about?
0: Well, asylum seekers have no legal duty to claim asylum in the first EU state they reach. Many asylum seekers decide to continue their journey after entering the first EU country in order to join relatives or friends or to reach a country with a functioning asylum system. But for EU member states, it's possible to make use of the Dublin Convention, which means that they can return asylum seekers to their country first entry uh, to process their asylum claim only if that country has an effective asylum system. EU countries in the north have often tried to use the Dublin system to their advantage. Sending asylum seekers back to their point of entry often happens at the expense of southern EU member states, like Italy, Greece or Spain, where most refugees first arrive when they take the dangerous sea route. Yet, as the asylum systems in the south have turned out to be overloaded, the attempts of northern states have often been unsuccessful. This is one of the many reasons why EU member states have proposed a reform of the Dublin Convention and the asylum system in 2016.
1: Thank you, Michal. While Denmark still follows some of the laws that are set out in the common European asylum system, the country has introduced numerous national immigration laws because it is not bound by the European system. In fact, the Danish government has introduced a hundred new laws on immigration and asylum in just under four years. In this context, It must be noted that the Danish People's Party became the second biggest party in the Danish parliament after the national elections were held in the country in 2015. The Danish Refugee Council, among many other institutions and initiatives, has criticized the speed with which these new laws have been introduced. The speed of these new laws also makes it very difficult for immigration lawyers to keep up. The Danish government has been widely criticized in the international media for its toughening on asylum laws.
0: Yeah, that's right. But we're no experts on any of these laws or recent changes. That's why we spoke to Eva Singer, who is the director of the Asylum Department of the Danish Refugee Council. The department mainly provides legal advice to asylum seekers in any phase of their application process. Also to immigrants and refugees who wish to return to their home country. Apart from this, the department is the Danish Refugee Council's advocate for the rights of asylum seekers in Denmark and in Europe. Most countries have different administrative procedures and rules, even though they are bound by the common European asylum system. However, Denmark is one of the few countries that did not adopt this system. We asked Eva to what extent the Danish asylum procedure is different from that in other European countries.
2: The asylum procedures directive would be minimum standards that uh, the countries have to live up to, such as you have to have an oral hearing of the asylum seeker, for example, that would not be a problem in Denmark. Um, and they have to have an interpreter that it's not a problem in Denmark either. So, so the uh, the requirements which are laid down in the procedure, the procedure's directive, Denmark could also live up to them,
1: mm. even
2: though we are not bound by it. What is particular, I suppose, for Denmark, is that we have these uh, reservations to the uh, justice and home affairs within the EU. So although you have an asylum procedures directive, which covers most of the EU countries, then Denmark is not part of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so in the sense, you could say that all countries have different procedures. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the other countries, they have to live up to the asylum procedures directive and, uh, and Denmark doesn't. But I think in practice, Denmark probably lives up to the,
1: all these directives in any case. Before we get into the details of the asylum procedure, let's just clarify some of the legal terms. We tend to hear a lot about migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, but those terms don't mean the same thing. Michal, could you briefly explain what the differences are?
0: Well, once people start their asylum procedure, they are considered what we call asylum seekers. It's not until they are actually granted asylum that they are considered as refugees. They have a refugee status. Yeah, what happens when people decide to apply for asylum in Denmark? Eva will guide us through the asylum procedure and tell us about some of the questions that asylum seekers are asked. Well, the obvious question is of
2: course, why did you leave your home country? Why uh, are you afraid to return back home? And if they say, well, I'm afraid I'll be killed, then it's basically, well, why would you be killed? What has happened before you left? Uh, is it because of your own activities or maybe your family is involved in a political activity or maybe it's a religious uh, belief that makes you um, fear to return to your home country. And then there will be questions about how they came to Denmark, um, the, the travel route, so to say, but that's not so important in terms of the assessing the claim for asylum.
0: There are several stages in an asylum procedure. According to Eva, it's rare that people are denied asylum in the first stage of the procedure.
2: Usually, there would be two interviews um, with the authorities at first instance. Uh, in some cases, you would, uh, if they're very obviously refugees, they would be recognized after the first interview. And that happened, for example, for a long time with Syrians, um, where they uh, they would be recognized after one interview. And uh, it could also be that they would be rejected after one interview if they were manifestly unfounded.
1: Mm.
2: But otherwise they would have often have two interviews and if they are rejected after that, they will uh, the case will automatically be appealed to the second instance, which is the Refugee Appeals Board.
0: Where the Immigration Service is the first instance responsible for assessing a claim for asylum, the Refugee Appeals Board is the second instance. If the asylum applicant is rejected by the first instance, the Immigration Service, in most cases the request is passed on to the second instance, the Refugee Appeals Board. Until the board has decided, the asylum seeker has the right to stay in Denmark, Eva explains. In a
2: normal case, they would be uh, go automatically to the appeals board if it's rejected in the first instance. And then when the appeals board has made a decision, so if they also reject the application, then the the person will normally have to leave Denmark within seven days from from the decision. Um, That doesn't happen usually, that they can leave that quickly. But that means that after seven days, then the police will contact them and ask them if they will uh, cooperate in returning, or if they were not, what happens first? You could say after those seven days have passed, they will be moved to a, a different uh, center, which is um, yeah. These translations are not so easy, but you could call it a return center. So they might live in a in a normal asylum center somewhere in the country. Then they will be moved to the specific center, and then. After having moved there, then they will be called for an interview to the with the police. And that's the stage where they will be asked if they cooperate or not. And then if they say, we don't want to return, we will not cooperate, then they will be moved to yet another return center. And, uh, and then the police will start working on the case. So yes, the, the seven days um, within which they have to leave the country is, is basically just a theoretical timeline.
0: In some cases, the Immigration Service decides that the case is manifestly unfounded, which means that the applicant has no reason to apply for asylum and that they can't be passed on to a second instance.
2: For for persons in the manifestly unfounded procedure, they would only have one interview in the Immigration Service. That could be uh, people coming from the Balkans who would enter into this procedure. But... Uh, the the special procedure, the, uh, they would be denied the possibility of appealing to the second instance, but only after the uh, the case has been reviewed by us, by the Danish Refugee Council. So in that situation, the uh, the Danish Immigration Service, after having the interview, they would send the file over to us, and we will have an interview with the asylum seeker. And then we can say whether we agree that it's manifestly unfounded or whether we do not agree. And uh, so if we do not agree, then the person will still be rejected by the authorities, but will be able to have the case reviewed by the appeals board.
1: But what happens when the Danish Refugee Council does not agree with the immigration service? If we do not believe that it's manifestly
2: unfounded, so it could be if we think the case is um, too complex, there are issues which need to be investigated more. Uh, If we think that the credibility assessment is not very clear, um, if we find that there's a small risk of persecution, maybe not a big risk, but a small risk, then we would also um, say no, because we would say that it's necessary to have a full hearing at the appeals board. And uh, so basically for procedural reasons, we would say this is not manifestly unfounded and therefore it should be uh, dealt with in a normal procedure. And that means obviously, apart from having an appeal possibility, that the person would also be given a, a lawyer to represent him or her at the appeals board.
1: The time it takes for asylum seekers to receive a decision on their application varies quite a lot. The idea of the EU Asylum Directive mentioned earlier is to shorten waiting times. In practice, however, this often doesn't work and waiting times can be really long, as Eva explains. I would think that
2: it's short now in the immigration service. And when I say fairly short, I don't even know, maybe half a year or something. But uh, at the appeals board, uh, I think it's a, about a year waiting period at the moment and, uh, and that's partly because they're still dealing with cases uh, of um, asylum seekers who came in, in 2015 and 16 when, when quite a lot of people came. But um, So I think at the first instance, because there are not so many new people arriving to seek asylum, I think that it's fairly quick at that stage. Sometimes when they uh, say what the average waiting period is, that means that there are some who have waited maybe two or three times as long, and that could be because uh, the authorities need to to find out more uh, background information from the country they come from, and and that if they then they would ask specific questions through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and and in those cases it could easily take an extra year because of that. There could be cases where the asylum seekers, they, uh, they let's see if I can find a good example, but if they say, oh, I belong to a certain political party, and the, if the authorities don't know much about the political party or don't know how, how people from that party are treated, then they would have to, to ask this information through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who would then go through the Danish embassy in that country and they would then have to find out if they uh, if there's any information about this specific asylum motive.
0: We also asked Eva to provide some insights of what happens during this waiting time. As established, waiting times can be long and we wanted to know to what extent asylum seekers are able to build up a life in Denmark during this time.
2: When you arrive as an asylum seeker in Denmark, you will be accommodated. Uh, and and there are different types of centers for this accommodation, but uh, it will be either a center which is run by uh, the Danish Red Cross or by some of the municipalities, some of the local authorities. And uh, while you live there, um, you will get, uh, again depending on which center it is, you will get some money so you can buy food and you can cook food. Uh, In some centers, there's only a cafeteria and so you won't get as much money and you won't be able to cook your own food. Um, The children can go to school and that can be either in a local, normal Danish school, be special schools which are made by either the Red Cross or the municipalities for the children of asylum seekers. In terms of access to, to medical treatment, it's possible, but only for, you would say, very serious or very urgent uh, needs. Um, then, then that would be paid by the uh, Danish Immigration Service. You will not normally be allowed to work, uh, but in some cases it is possible to obtain the right to work while you're still an asylum seeker. But very few... Uh, people will be able to fulfill those criteria. One of the criteria would be that it's not easy to find uh, people in Denmark who can take the jobs. Um, But so I think in the past it was a bit easier, and now it's become more difficult because of changes of the law, um, political reasons. Um, There was a... uh, Uh, Like a political agreement back in 2012 that uh, asylum seekers should be able to live outside of the uh, asylum centers more easily and that they should have more easily access to the labor market. And that was changed again in 2015 with a change of government.
1: It is often so that some nationalities are more easily accepted than others. As Eva explained earlier, the decision largely depends on the situation in the home country of asylum seekers, which is why people from war-torn countries are accepted more quickly and with less questioning than people from other countries.
2: Some of the larger groups uh, coming are Afghans, Iranians, Syrians, um, and, and like the Syrians are all accepted as refugees, among the Afghans, there's, uh, okay. the vast majority are rejected. I think Iranians, I'm not sure about this, this precise figure, but maybe it's about 50% who are rejected. Mm-hmm. Uh, Re- Iraqis, is a fairly big group as well, and they are mostly rejected. Then you have um, you had a big group of ref- asylum seekers coming from Georgia and they are almost, if not all of them, are rejected. Entrants are also almost, I would say, almost 100% acceptance.
1: But so, what happens once people do receive refugee status?
2: If you have received refugee status, there's a, you get a residence permit,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and there's a recognition that the, uh, you would, your life or your whatever would be at risk if you return home. Mm-hmm. What can happen is that the authorities They uh, make a new decision later on, saying that now the situation has changed in your home country. And so there's no longer any risk uh, if you are returned to that country. And uh, uh, if that happens, then there's a new procedure and there's an appeals possibility and and, uh, they will be assigned a lawyer as
1: well. However, in some cases, it is possible for the Danish state to withdraw that refugee status.
2: In the past, it hasn't really happened, but we saw uh, a, a change of practice, you could say, with a group, big group of Somali refugees, uh, where the Danish uh, Immigration Service started to reviewing their decisions in 2016, and they uh, withdrew uh, refugee status and residence permit for quite a, a large number of these people. And uh, so uh, those cases then went to the next stage, to the appeal stage, and the appeals board has uh, looked into the cases and are still dealing with many of the cases. And some of them, uh, the appeals board will uh, overturn the decision, basically saying, no, you're you're still allowed to stay in Denmark, and then they can continue with their residence permit. But in some of the cases, the appeals board agrees, with the immigration service and then that means they have to leave the country and they they have to leave the country then within 30 days which is longer than for the asylum seeker but they have obviously uh, i mean 30 days is actually not very much if if you have lived here for several years and uh, you know you have a life you have an apartment and you have a car and all these kind of things
0: One of the particularities of the Danish refugee law is that refugees can be rather easily sent back to their home country. This has especially changed after 2015, when the Danish People's Party, the DPP, became the second largest party in the Danish parliament. Eva explains one of the laws that was introduced in 2015 and how it affected the Somalis in Denmark.
2: There was a a change of the law in 2015, um, which made it more possible or easier to change the status of um, refugees, if the uh, changes had happened in the home country. Um, and the, the, it's very uh, technical because then you need to know about the different kinds of refugee status that you can have. But the Somalis did not have refugee status according to the Refugee Convention, but according to the European Convention on Human Rights. So, the, the criteria for withdrawing refugee status, if you, have ref, if you have been recognized according to the Refugee Convention, those criteria are much more strict, so that's not so easy for the authorities to do, but if you have been accepted according to the European Convention on Human Rights, then it's easier to fulfill the criteria that the situation has changed in your home country. So this is what happened for the Somalis, And this is what might happen uh, even more so uh, with the change of uh, the aliens law just recently here on the 1st of March.
0: The most recent change in Danish refugee law is the so-called paradigm shift introduced in March this year. Eva explains what its implementation has meant for refugees in Denmark and why the law has received widespread criticism.
2: The change that has taken place now is basically that, apart from the changes in your home country, the uh, the authorities will not have to take into consideration s- to the same extent as before, whether you have obtained a, uh, a close connection with Denmark. So if we take the Somalis as an example, uh, some of them, uh, you the authorities said, well, there's not a risk to your life anymore in Somalia, but because you have been in Denmark for a long time, you speak the language, you work, your children go to school, then you will be allowed to stay here all the same. Now that latter part of the decision has changed now from the 1st of March, so that the authorities uh, will not have to take put so much emphasis on these criteria.
0: We ask Eva how exactly the law impacts migrants in Denmark.
2: The largest changes are for, for refugees who have already received asylum because the, uh, the changes in terms of the integration assistance granted uh, also covers people who have already been granted refugee status and have lived in Denmark for many years. Um, so the, uh, the focus there is partly on this um, making everything temporary. It's not so easy to find a proper word for that. But so that even though you have been in Denmark for five, six, seven years uh, and have integrated to some extent, there's uh, still a risk that the uh, authorities will withdraw your refugee status. Uh, So that covers people who have been here for a long time as well, and not, not only newcomers.
0: Finally, Eva told us why she doesn't like the word paradigm shift, which is what this most recent law has been called.
2: Well, you could say in a way it sounds like it's something positive. (laughs) <laughs> uh, which I don't believe it is, but it's, uh, there's a lot of symbolism in it. It's uh, a question of uh, sending a signal to the Danish population, but also to the refugees in Denmark. And part of the paradigm shift is based on an assumption that uh, refugees will be able to go back home within a short period. Uh, And I think that that assumption just is not correct because most refugees will not be able to return to their home country within a couple of years or even four or five years because the changes in those countries uh, do not appear as easily and as quickly as as the law somehow presupposes.
1: The paradigm shift that Eva mentioned has also been widely criticized by various humanitarian organizations in Denmark. One of the aspects that this new law reveals is also who holds the power to decide whether a country is safe to return to or not. The decision to declare a country of origin safe can have far reaching consequences. Asylum seekers usually left their country because they weren't safe. They were being threatened and prosecuted. If a country is declared safe for the wrong reasons or too soon, these people will face the same obstacles and dangers when they're sent back. This can be seen in reports about refugees who return to their home country, either voluntarily or involuntarily. Very often, they're accompanied by stories about disappearances, detentions and other hardship. In 2018, for example, Germany declared that Afghanistan is now safe enough to have people deported back there. On the same day that the interior minister happily declared that 69 Afghans have been deported, a German news agency reports a suicide attack in the Afghan city of Jalalabad. Still, all over the world, refugees long for the opportunity to return to their home country. Mostly the critical situation that their countries are in keeps them from risking a return. A very striking example for this is Burundi, a small state in Central Eastern Africa. In our next episode of Slow News, we'll follow up on today's topic by looking at Burundi. We will talk to two people who had to flee Burundi. And we will also discuss the situation with human rights organizations and try to shed light on a crisis that is terrifyingly overlooked and underreported in mainstream media. So make sure that you tune in for our last episode of Slow News with Juliette and Luisa. This was the last episode for this year from Michal and me, Thank you also to Valerie for helping us with research. We hope that you enjoyed today's show and thank you for listening.
0: By showing actually the latest satellite
2: picture
1: Slow down.